Hey, it's Matt Cross from UMass Basketball, and I've got a slam dunk insurance recommendation for you. I'm a Massachusetts native myself, and I know the importance of hometown loyalty and toughness. When I need insurance as tough as me, I choose Amherst Insurance. They've had UMass Basketball's back for decades, and they'll have yours too. Trust me. Amherst Insurance isn't just an insurance agency. They're a part of our community, deeply rooted in Massachusetts values. They understand the hustle, the spirit, and the pride that defines us here. So if you're looking for a hometown insurance agent who's got the same drive and determination as me, it's Amherst Insurance all the way. And remember, when you make that call or visit the NathanAgencies.com, tell them Matt Cross sent you. UMass fans, Josh Coney, the latest addition to the UMass basketball family. The energy here is unreal, and let's not forget UMass football season is revving up, and I'm all in. Now listen up. Moving can be a hassle, but five college movers made my transition seamless. Mention my name, Josh, and you'll not only score exclusive pricing, but tickets to a UMass basketball game of your choosing, courtesy of five college movers. So UMass fans, let's rally for football, get ready for basketball, and when it's time to move stress-free, team up with five college movers. Go UMass. And a big welcome back to Commonwealth Conversations Everyday Minutemen Stories brought to you by the Mass Collective. I'm your host, Nathan Strauss. Happy game day. This is recorded uh, two days prior, but it is being released right now on Saturday as UMass heads just down 91, about 20 minutes to take on West Virginia. And the man who will be doing PA for these games has a long uh, history with UMass. It is the former voice of the Minutemen, George Miller. The third, George, thank you so much for taking the time and hopping on here today. Well, you're very welcome, uh, Nathan. And as I uh, said uh, to both you and to uh, Patrick, uh, thank you for thinking of me and extending the invite. Of course. So if people don't know you, uh, how would you describe yourself? Well, um, I guess the Reader's Digest uh, condensed version of that would be... uh, uh, sometime sports media guy, um, sometime butterfly wrangler, which we can get into a little bit more, um, have microphone, will travel, uh, that kind of thing. And um, I've been fortunate to have a uh, an extended association with UMass and UMass athletics in particular in a lot of different incarnations. Um, and this is going all the way back now to when I first started doing it professionally in 1987. Um, There have definitely been some gaps during that time when I wasn't involved or as involved. Uh, But then there are, you know, game days like we have, uh, you know, here on Saturday um, where I can uh, step back into the chair for a few hours anyway and, uh, and, uh, you know, give it the, uh, the old school try. Well, people probably know your voice and for people of a certain generation who are listening to UMass basketball in the glory days, 91 to 95, they would definitely know your voice. But you went to Oberlin for undergrad. What did you study there? And was it anything to do with broadcasting or communications? I was a French major at Oberlin, so it is certainly a, a, a long and uh, you know twisted path from uh, from that to this. Um, I, I like to say that uh, if, if I had any kind of a uh, of an academic minor um, in college, it would have been radio uh, because I spent probably 
just as much time on the uh, the campus radio station, uh, WOBC, and up in the studios on the third floor of Wilder Hall uh, than I did in uh, you know serious academic pursuits. And uh, some of that was uh, was music programming, um, you know, but uh, but mostly it was uh, it was sports programming for a, a college and a program that doesn't exactly have a long or distinguished history in uh, intercollegiate athletics. Um, it's a Division three school and uh, plays a lot of uh, similar schools uh, from around uh, the Midwest. Um, but, uh, it was, uh, it was really, um, you know, an opportunity to, to hone your craft. Although by the time I was done there in, uh, the spring of 1987, um, I don't think, uh, I had it in mind at that point to pursue radio as a career, uh, that took a little extra time and a few other uh, developments, uh, before, uh, before it played out that way. I was actually just in Ohio visiting my sister, who's at Kenyon, which is one of those uh, yep. Midwestern schools that uh, that Oberlin uh, would play. Uh, so I know the area a little bit. But how did you get the job that brought you to UMass? What brought you back to, to Western Massachusetts? After uh, graduating, I uh, spent the summer of 87 uh working uh, for my dad, just doing general contracting. Uh, that was his business for you know, 40 years, really. Um, at the end of September of 87, I happened to see uh, a newspaper ad um, advertising for a sports director at WHMP Radio in Northampton. Um, I, I like to say if I could... Uh, if, if I could have bottled this and marketed it as your job search made easy, I'd, I'd probably be living a life of leisure by now. But um, I saw the ad on, uh, I believe, a Tuesday, uh, spent Wednesday uh, putting together my demo tape uh, and a resume, uh, dropped off all my material at the radio station on a Thursday, um, got a call from the uh, operations manager, Mike Dion, on a Friday asking if I could come in the next day, Saturday, to interview. I figured if they wanted to really interview me on a weekend that uh, this must be serious. Uh, so I went in on uh, uh, Saturday morning and uh, interviewed. They basically offered me the job on the spot. I said, can you at least give me until Monday to think about it? They did. I got back to them on Monday and uh, said, uh, yes, I would uh, definitely love to uh, get up at 3.30 in the morning, uh, six days a week for about the next eight years, as it turned out. And uh, I started working uh, at the radio station um, in mid-October of 1987. Um, it was the middle of the fall sports season. I can remember probably the first UMass sporting event that I covered would have been the um, women's soccer final four, which UMass was hosting at McGurk Alumni Stadium uh, that year with um, UMass uh, Central Florida, which was coached by Jim Rudy, who later became the UMass women's soccer coach. Um, Cal Berkeley and, uh, of course, North Carolina, uh, the powerhouse, um, which ended up beating UMass one to nothing in the championship game. Um, and uh, that was the, the first time that I uh, had a chance to cover UMass sports. That was fairly late in November. Uh, at the end of November, we had a men's basketball season that started. I started covering those games. And uh, that's uh, really um, you know, where uh, was hooked into me as far as uh, uh, covering UMass. How did you get the job of that of broadcasting in that 91 season? 
There was actually a little bit of a background that goes into that. In the 1989-90 season, which was John Calipari's second season as head coach, I did the color commentary um, on the broadcasts with Tim Ashwell, who had uh, done the games for a number of years. Um, I did all the home games and a few of the road games. Uh, that was a year in which UMass made it all the way to the uh, finals of the Atlantic 10 tournament, had big upsets over both West Virginia and Penn State to get to the final, uh, played Temple at Temple in the championship game and lost by two, and then uh, went to the NIT, played a first-round game down at Maryland at the, the old Cole Fieldhouse, and uh, you lost a game in a building that, I remember, felt like it was about 120 degrees inside for mid-March. Um, that's uh, kind of you know, where I got my foot in the door. WHMP lost the broadcasting rights for a year, the 1991 season. They were taken over by WSPR in Springfield, and a guy named Dan York, um, who actually uh, did the play-by-play -play for both uh, football and uh, basketball for that 1991 season. In the fall of 91, his station went dark. It went out of business. And so the broadcasting rights reverted back to WHMP. And uh, the guy who had hired me back in 87, Mike Dion, I never forget this. I'll remember him walking down the hallway at the radio station toward my cubicle and uh, telling me the story about how um, the station was getting the rights back and would I be interested in doing the play-by-play. -play. Well, I, I think you can probably guess uh, what my answer was to that. And uh, so that allowed me to, uh, to get started uh, November 22nd of 91 with a midnight game uh, made for TV, ESPN, against Siena at the Curry-Hicks cage, um, a game that UMass won by about 35. And then a week later, we were in Anchorage, Alaska for the Great Alaska Shootout, where UMass won three games, um, won the championship, beating New Orleans. And uh, so that was, uh, that was a pretty good way to start uh, right out of the box. Um, with uh, That was the, the first, first of four seasons where I did the play-by-play -play, um, in 91-92. Uh, this might be, you know, too big of a question almost, but what was it like traveling, being around and, you know, broadcasting for that team? Were there, uh, you know, were you traveling with the team? What were the accommodations like? What was it like kind of being the, you know, most outward facing member of that, that sort of travel party? Um, I did travel uh, with the team uh, as it happened. And as time went along, especially as we got to the uh, the fourth season when I was doing the play-by-play, -play, the 94-95 season, uh, starting off with the win over Arkansas in the tip-off classic, and that's what vaulted UMass into the number one spot in the, uh, in the polls. Uh, first for one week before they lost to Kansas, and then later on regaining the number one ranking and, and holding it for well over a month um, in uh, January and early February of that year. I always uh, kind of likened it to uh, hanging with rock stars. Um, it really did have that feel about it. And just to, to be able to be in the Mullen Center uh, night after night, um, it was uh, every night. It wasn't just a game. It was an event. It was the destination kind of crowd. Um, it was the place to see and be seen. Um, and, uh, of course, the basketball um, and uh, the extremely – you know, high level and all the accomplishments that the, that the program, you know, had, uh, uh, had made and, uh, and attained um, really created um, that kind of atmosphere. So 
in a way, um, you know, there was a little bit of added pressure, you know, to try to tell this team's story appropriately, um, as good as they were and as nationally prominent as they became. And yet at the same time, um, I tried to balance that as best I could, you know, with my regular day-to-day duties of doing sports you know, Monday through Saturday at the radio station, starting at 5.30 in the morning, um, you know, every uh, half hour or so up through nine o'clock and uh, still managed to work in uh, high school games and covering Northampton high school football games in the fall. I, I looked at all of these things, you know, including uh, doing UMass games as, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, individual pieces in, in a much larger puzzle um, that, uh, that, that I was trying to keep together. So the UMass games it, it may have you know, given me more of a platform and maybe a little bit more exposure, but I always tried to, uh, to treat everything I did in all aspects of my job as sports director and try to keep everything on, uh, on the same level um, in as much as that was possible. Do you have a, a call that really sticks out to you in your mind or a single game that you broadcast that you think back on as being, you know, the pinnacle of your work? There are a few, I think, that uh, that fall into that category. Um, folks will think back to the uh, the uh, NCAA game in Worcester in 1992, the second round game against Syracuse where UMass was actually leading by one point in overtime, um, inbounding the ball with very little time left on the shot clock. And Harper Williams, who uh, wasn't supposed to shoot the ball in that situation, well, he did beat the shot clock with a three-pointer, uh, put UMass up by four and uh, on their way to a, uh, a six-point win. Um, so that was, uh, that was a pretty exciting moment. Trying to keep track of everything that was happening on the floor at Rutgers in 1995, um, right after UMass had lost the number one ranking, they played a game at Rutgers, which was interrupted at halftime by a large student protest um, based on some uh, some remarks that the university president at Rutgers had made uh, not too long before that with regard to uh, minority admissions and uh, SAT scores and things like that. It got a lot of people angry and they used that night and the playing the number four team in the nation at that time to uh, to make their statement um, and carry on a, uh, um, you know, a pretty significant protest. Um, I, you know, it, it really felt like, uh, you know, Al Michaels at the uh, Bay Area earthquake in the 1989 World Series, you know, trying to uh, keep a handle on all of that. And uh, you know, probably just uh, in general, the runs in the NCAA's that UMass was able to make four years in a row uh, for the years that I did it, ninety-two through ninety-five, and getting all the way to um, to the East Regional Final in ninety-five, where they lost out to uh, Big Country Reeves and Oklahoma State. So um, there are uh, you know a lot of uh, moments, a lot of memories, you know, stuff that uh, stays with me. Uh, even if I haven't done the games now for 28 years, um, those memories are, are are not very far away. I know nowadays we have, you know, the pregame interview with uh, pre and postgame interview with with coaches. Were you what was your working relationship like with Coach Cal and that staff, given that you were, um, you know, the voice of the team at that time? Um. It worked uh, really well, um, I thought. Um, there was, uh, um, it's interesting, one of the assistant coaches uh, with John at that time was John Robick, um, who was an, another Pittsburgh guy, like John Calipari was. 
And uh, John Robick was a year, uh, two years actually older than me. Um, he played basketball at one of those other small Ohio schools, Denison University um, in Granville, Ohio. So, uh, and they in Oberlin and, and Kenyon, as you mentioned before, they're all in the same conference, the North Coast Athletic Conference, and uh, you know, playing each other multiple times a year. So we always had uh, Ohio small college basketball war stories to tell. But between uh, John and uh, Bruiser Flint and Bill Baino um, and uh, um, yeah, just a, a, a really good working relationship um, to, uh, you, know, you know, with all of them. Um, and... You know, I, I would say that um, it's a, it's probably a little bit refreshing, you know, compared to um, you know some situations nowadays that that broadcasters may find themselves in, as far as uh, um, you know, you know, working with uh, you know with a team or or with a coaching staff. And um, I know that the, there are some instances. I'm you know glad to say, you know, what I know of UMass is is not one of them. Um, where it is kind of an us versus them um, your relationship and even can be somewhat adversarial. Um, we didn't have that um, back in the day. And, um, and that was, uh, you know, that was really um, encouraging that we were able to, uh, to maintain it that way, um, especially when you know, all this success and national acclaim and recognition was really you know, being visited on UMass um, you know, in, in really a, a short period of time. I can confirm, by the way, that UMass is not one of those places. Um, you know, I think fortunately there's there's really good buy-in from the coaches of, you know, the three sports that are broadcast on radio right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a rising tide carries all ships, I think, is the, is the mindset right now, which uh, is really helpful. I mean, heck, with, uh, with you know, with just being Frank and the, the UMass uh, Power Hour, like Frank Martin is doing like three or four things a week, which is, which is great. Um, and, and it's much, uh, much appreciated. You also spent time in minor league baseball back in the, uh, the, the old days when the Pittsfield Mets were around, there is a Pittsfield Mets tie-in by the way, to a current UMass student athlete. Bo Cosman is on the UMass hockey team and his father, Jeff was on the, uh, Pittsfield Mets back in the, the mid nineties. But what do you remember most about your time, um, doing summer minor league baseball? Well, it, it's interesting. I did it for two seasons, and there was a gap of uh, four years in between those two seasons. Um, it was with the same franchise in two different cities in two different states, as it happened, with the Pittsfield Mets in 1997. Um, again, this is the New York-Pennsylvania Baseball League. No longer exists. Um, short season Class A. They were, of course, an affiliate with the New York Mets. The 1997 team uh, had um, as its pitching coach Bob Stanley, so there was the uh, the obvious uh, Red Sox in New England tie-in, and from that team, the one player who had by far the most distinguished major league career would have been A.J. Burnett, who ended up pitching for 17 seasons in the major leagues. He pitched a no-hitter. Um, so, and, and that was a team that won the New York Penn League championship that year. They had great pitching. They had not much offense or defense. Um, but their pitching kept it in it, kept them in uh, most every game, and they wound up winning a championship game. In my broadcasting career, uh, that final game of uh, game three of the championship series against the Batavia Clippers, uh, where a guy named Kevin McCarthy hit a uh, humpback line drive single to right field with the bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, broke a 2 2 tie, won the championship for the Mets. That's probably the uh, broadcast highlight or my best call of any sport that I've done. Fast forward a few years to 2002, 
The franchise had left Pittsfield, moved to Troy, New York. They were now affiliated with the Houston Astros. They became known as the Tri-City Valley Cats, named after the three primary cities in the capital region, Troy, Albany, and Schenectady. Uh, opened up a brand new stadium, Joseph L. Bruno Stadium at uh, Hudson Valley Community College in Troy. And uh, I was back with the same ownership group and a front office uh, doing another season um, of uh, um, minor league baseball. Uh, wasn't nearly as successful. The team uh, was about 20 games under 500, but it was a good group of guys. They enjoyed uh, playing and you know, working together. Yvonne De Jesus was their manager, a longtime major league sh uh, shortstop. Um, so uh, it was uh, those were interesting times. Again, I, I got to work with the same administration, even though it was a few years apart and got to experience both the highs and the lows, uh, a team in 97 that wound up winning a championship and then a team in uh, 2002 that, uh, you know, wasn't very good. But uh, again, um, you know, the, the guys on that team uh, really made it work. Now, I grew up wanting to be Don Orsillo or Sean Grandy, you know, or Joe Castiglio, like some of the the Red Sox, Boston broadcasting greats. Who were the people when you were getting into the industry who you were looking up to or rubbing shoulders with? I know you you must have been on press row with some of, you know, the great names back in the 90s, but who were those people who you, I don't know if aspired to be is the, is the fair terminology, but who you looked up to, I guess, in that sense? When I started doing the play-by-play -play for UMass in 1991, I was 26 years old. So I was, uh, you know, just uh, a, a real, a real cub, a real novice um, in all of this. But, um, but being in that spot you know, allowed me to come into contact with um, uh, with a number of, uh, of great broadcasters for college sports. Um, I mentioned the trip to Alaska earlier, and immediately following that trip, uh, UMass went to Lexington, Kentucky, to play a game against Rick Pitino and the Kentucky Wildcats at Rupp Arena. Um, wasn't such a great game after the, the three great games they had just played in Alaska, but I did get to meet Kaywood Ledford, the longtime radio voice of the Kentucky Wildcats, and that turned out to be his last season behind the mic before he retired. Um, around the Atlantic 10, uh, the, there were uh, you know, a number of, uh, of guys. Uh, Ray Goss at Duquesne, who I believe is still doing games out there, and he's, he's, he's in his late 80s by now. Um, Bruce Johnson from Rutgers. Uh, Fran Tomasino from St. Bonaventure. Um, guys from, uh, from, uh, from Temple and uh, um, Don Henderson, uh, St. Joseph's, um, uh, Ken Krasolovic. Um, just... Uh, um, a, a lot of, uh, you know, really good guys, um, you know, Rhode Island, uh, you know, Jim Norman and then Steve McDonald, um, you know, just, uh, um, terrific pros and you know, always great to, you know, to spend time with them, um, uh, you know, try to learn from them, you know, however much I could in those, you know, brief times on game days where we could interact with each other. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, for, for a young you know, up and coming broadcaster at that time, it was, uh, um, it, it was definitely, you know, I was feeling a little bit starstruck um, around some of those folks. I get it. A hundred percent. I, uh, I was lucky enough to meet um, Jason Benetti earlier this year in Atlanta. And that was, I was, that was one of the first times that I remember being like nervous to talk to someone, you know? Um, but it's, it's a pretty cool feeling switching gears completely. Magic Wings. 
how did Magic Wings start? How long has it been a family business? And what is it? Where do people go if they want to go to it? Tell me everything. Okay, well, we are a butterfly conservatory and gardens. We're right on routes five and 10 in South Deerfield, uh, 281 Greenfield Road, if you'd like to punch it up on your GPS. Um, we're open six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday. Um, we've been open since 2000. Um, and if you're wondering how I came to be involved with it, uh, a lot of it wasn't really my own doing. It was a kind of a family affair. My dad, who had worked in general contracting again for almost four decades at that point, he was contracted by the founder and original owner of Magic Wings, Alan Rulwich, to build the facility, which he did back in the 1998 to 1999 period. On this site, um, there used to be a restaurant called the Candlelight Restaurant, which was owned and operated by the Redmond family here in, in Deerfield. Um, we built, uh, you know, 8,000, well, it started off as a 4,000 square foot conservatory, um, a big greenhouse, basically. It didn't stay that size for too long. We had to double it fairly quickly because we outgrew the original space. My dad was part of the initial ownership group um, when, uh, you know, with a few other investors um, when the facility first opened in 2000. After a series of twists and turns and developments, uh, my dad became the sole proprietor. Um, he brought my sister, uh, Kathy, who's a year younger than me, uh, into work uh, doing special events and eventually as the general manager. She started in 2003. I began in 2004 as the business manager. Um, that was at a point where I really hadn't done any serious regular sports casting for almost two years at that point. And it was looking a little bit at other things. And, uh, well, I, I, I got, you know, a, a hefty dose of butterflies from my trouble. So it was the three of us, uh, my dad, my sister, and myself working together for about 13 years. Um, dad passed away in 2017. Um, my mom in 2020. Uh, so for the last six years now, it's been uh, my sister and myself who have been running the place. And um, we like to say that uh, it's a chance to visit the tropics without having to jump on a plane. Um, it's a, it is a tropical atmosphere side. We have over 4,000 live butterflies from all over the world flying freely throughout the enclosure. Every day, year round, we have that many butterflies, even in the dead of January. So it's a great place to visit, especially when the weather outside isn't great. Um, and uh, a, a bunch of other uh, kinds of creatures as well, other insects, uh, birds, lizards, frogs, fish. Um, but the focus is certainly on butterflies. And, um, you know, if you would ask me back in the UMass broadcasting days, you know, could I have ever foreseen uh, a time, you know, now that I'm in my, uh, my late 50s, um, where I would be doing something like this, and I, you know, might have just, you know, laughed you out of the room, um, but, uh, but that's, uh, how you know, my life is, uh, has turned. Um, so, uh, so that's what I meant at the beginning when I said, uh, you know, now I get to be a butterfly wrangler, um, on a daily basis. And, uh, we have close to a hundred thousand people come to visit us every year. So it has uh, become a real, um, it, it's kind of a, an extreme niche kind of, uh, um, attraction. We get that. Um, but, uh, again, it's an opportunity to, uh, to bring an experience to folks uh, right here in the Pine Valley that they don't have to make a big road trip to see the kinds of things that we've been able to put together here. I'll add one more further plug. First of all, visit magicwings.com if you're interested in learning more. If you are a youngster like myself and you are interested 
in a good first date spot in the area, I would strongly recommend. It's like the perfect outing because it's a little, it's not too far away from, from the five college area. You get to do something. You're around nature. Um, it's warm, which is nice. I would, uh, I would, I can fully endorse that um, as well, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, but uh, we ask two questions to everyone who comes on uh, and does one of these with us. The first is, if you had an NIL deal, either now or back in the day when you were broadcasting, what company or business or, you know, local spot would you have wanted to partner with? Well, um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I think uh, back at that time, um, a place which didn't even exist yet, um, you know, probably would have been uh, high on my list. And uh, that would be the hangar, um, which you know, didn't come into existence until you know, several years after I was done doing the play-by-play. -play. Um, as far as... Uh, Places that were operating during those years, um, rafters, I guess, would have to be up there as well. The the uh, late lamented rafters, rest in peace. Um, but certainly, uh, that was a uh, you know a, a pretty uh, a popular uh, hang uh, for uh, for a lot of folks, and uh, we did a ton of coaches shows there as well. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a little. It's a tough question, you know, because I because I can't really come at it from uh, from the prospect, uh, you know, of, of having been a college athlete, you know, since that was, uh, um, you know, never part of my background, and uh, you know, it wasn't going to be, uh, you know, a, a part of my life. Um, but again, just uh, thinking back to uh, um, you know the the local spots that were important to me uh, back then, yeah, probably those two, um, Raptors and the Hangar, would be uh, at or near the top. Two very valid answers. I lament daily that I was never able to go uh, to rafters, but hopefully there is at some point a place that can fill that void. Um, and, you know, obviously the hangar is a great, I live about a mile and a half from the hangar and it, it, I have to battle my own, you know, temptation every time I drive home from the Mullen Center. But the other question that we ask everyone is if you were the coach of a UMass team down one and it's the final, you know, the final play of the game, which player all time would you want to take that game-winning shot? This is an easy one, uh, only because he was called upon to do it a number of times uh, back in the day, and he delivered uh, almost every single time. Uh, that would be the late Mike Williams. Uh, there are six games that I know of off the top of my head where he hit a late basket in a couple of cases, more than one basket uh, to win a game for UMass or to force an overtime or to win a game at the end of overtime. Um, he had the nickname Uzi back in the day, and there was certainly a, you know, no reluctance uh, for him uh, to, to shoot the basketball um, in those spots. Um, we lost Mike uh, far too young at the age of 48 in uh, 2021. Um, but, um, yes, but certainly he provided, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of big shots and a lot of great memories, uh, for fans as an aside, um, if I, if you'll indulge me in a, in a plug of my own here, um, a lot of those, uh, times and moments, uh, from back uh, in the day, I've managed to preserve, uh, on a SoundCloud page. Um, when I went back and, uh, found as much audio of all the broadcasts that I did of UMass games for four seasons from 91 to 95, 
there's 130 some games on there. I don't have every minute of every game, um, but uh, but the vast majority of them are there. If you go to SoundCloud.com and just search on UMass Basketball Broadcasts, uh, you'll find uh, what I like to think of as a treasure trove of uh, memories from back then. And it was uh, quite the project. It took me well over a year, actually, to, uh, to assemble all of it. But, uh, um, but it is something that uh, I'm, you know, I, I feel justifiably proud about. A hundred percent. I think that's great. And uh, we can even put it in the description of this uh, of this podcast on Spotify as well. So people can click to it, which is uh, which is really cool. And I will definitely be checking that out as well. Uh, And by the way, Mike Williams has absolutely been the modal answer for that question. And I think it says a lot when you have people from basically every generation who are giving him his flowers. Uh, Again, uh, a, a great a great end of game player, clearly. Uh, but George, thank you so much for for hopping on. We will see you or hear you at um, you know the Mass Mutual Center, and of course, you know around various UMass events at various times. I've I've heard you plenty um, at McGurk Alumni Stadium as well. But um, and maybe a trip up to to Magic Wings is in my future as well. But thank you so much for making the time and hopping on. Well, thank you, Nathan and Patrick, and uh, for having me. And uh, yeah, in terms of visiting Magic Wings, Nathan. Uh, um, I know the owner, so I'll, I'll pick it up <laughs> you right up. Thanks to everyone for listening to Commonwealth Conversations Everyday Minute Men Stories brought to you by the Massachusetts Collective. I've been your host, Nathan Strauss. We'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Matt Cross from UMass Basketball, and I've got a slam dunk insurance recommendation for you. I'm a Massachusetts native myself, and I know the importance of hometown loyalty and toughness. When I need insurance as tough as me, I choose Amherst Insurance. They've had UMass basketballs back for decades, and they'll have yours too. Trust me. Amherst Insurance isn't just an insurance agency. They're a part of our community, deeply rooted in Massachusetts values. They understand the hustle, the spirit, and the pride that defines us here. So if you're looking for a hometown insurance agent who's got the same drive and determination as me, it's Amherst Insurance all the way. And remember, when you make that call or visit thenathanagencies.com, tell them Matt Cross sent you. UMass fans, Josh Coney, the latest addition to the UMass basketball family. The energy here is unreal, and let's not forget UMass football season is revving up, and I'm all in. Now listen up. Moving can be a hassle, but five college movers made my transition seamless. Mention my name, Josh, and you'll not only score exclusive pricing, but tickets to a UMass basketball game of your choosing, courtesy of five college movers. So UMass fans, let's rally for football, get ready for basketball, and when it's time to move stress-free, team up with five college movers. Go UMass.